Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Debbie Thomas. My essay this week is entitled, Where the Wind Blows. It's based upon the lectionary readings for March 8th, 2020, the second Sunday of Lent. John 3.16 was the first Bible verse I memorized as a child. In Sunday school, I learned that it's essentially Christianity 101, a simple formula for faith, a handy evangelism tool, and a perfect summary of the good news. Over the years, I've seen the verse displayed on billboards, t-shirts, coffee mugs, and cross-stitch samplers. Martin Luther called it the heart of the Bible, the gospel in miniature. And so it is. On this second Sunday of Lent, as we consider Jesus' lengthy encounter with Nicodemus, John 3.16 jumps out of their perplexing dialogue for its efficiency and pithiness. In just 27 words, the verse describes a loving God, a cherished world, a self-giving son, a universal invitation, a deliverance from death, and a promise of eternal life. Christianity in a nutshell, right? Well, I'm not so sure. The problem is not in the verse itself, but in what the church so often does with it. In our well-intentioned efforts to make the gospel message accessible and palatable, we Christians sometimes reduce salvation to a soundbite, forgetting that when Jesus originally spoke the words to Nicodemus, a Pharisee, a member of the Sanhedrin, and likely one of the more erudite men of his day, his listener found Jesus' words incomprehensible. How can these things be, Nicodemus asked in astonishment, when Jesus spoke to him in the obscure and metaphorical language of birth, flesh, water, and spirit. And Jesus refused to simplify his explanations. If he intended to save Nicodemus quickly and easily that night, he failed. What the seeker experienced was not salvation, it was bewilderment. If Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus is representative of God's preferred evangelism style, then I have to wonder, what does my more formulaic approach to Christianity leave out? Am I so invested in keeping the faith cozy and comfortable that I minimize its weirdness, its otherness, its offensiveness? Jesus had no problem leaving Nicodemus confused and muddled. He was in no hurry to get Nicodemus to sign on the dotted line. The spirit blows where it chooses, Jesus said. The spirit cannot be caged or contained, which means the journey of faith and the workings of salvation can't be caged or contained either. When we speak of God's kingdom, we are in a realm of deep mystery. It's okay to be surprised. It's okay to be stricken. It's okay to take our time. After all, what Jesus was offering Nicodemus was not a tune-up or a few minor tweaks to his already almost perfect life. It was a brand new life, a new birth, a fresh beginning. What newborn enters the world without birth pangs, shock, disorientation, or pain? Downright bewilderment isn't the exception in a birth story, it's the rule. If we don't find Christianity at least a little bit confusing, then perhaps it's not Christianity we're practicing. As I sit with Nicodemus' baffled reaction to Jesus, here's what I'm asking myself. What does my glib reading of John 3.16 prevent me from seeing about God, Christ, faith, sin, and salvation? Do I lean too hard on the importance of individual belief? and forget the stunning truth that God loves and longs for all of creation, quite apart from my belief or unbelief? 
Do I treat Jesus' words as a litmus test, using it not to communicate God's all-encompassing compassion and mercy, but to threaten unbelievers with God's judgment? Do I allow my interpretation to flatten and distort the meaning of belief, reducing its nuance and complexity to mere intellectual assent? What does it mean, after all, to say, I believe in Jesus? Why is belief, of all things, so important to God? Growing up, I was taught that being a Christian means affirming the right things. To accept Jesus into my heart, to be born again, was to agree to a set of doctrines about who Jesus is and what he accomplished through his death and resurrection. To enter into Orthodox faith faith was to believe that certain theological statements about God, Jesus, the Holy Spirit, the human condition, the Bible, and the Church were true. When we spoke of growing in the faith, what we meant was that we were honing our doctrinal commitments. To be a mature Christian was to have one's theological ducks in a row. This honing, moreover, was a serious business. As a teenager, I watched congregations split up over the legitimacy of infant baptism over believer's baptism. I knew Christians who considered speaking in tongues a litmus test for faith. I heard pastors fight over whether the communion table should be open, available to all, or closed, reserved for baptized members of a particular faith community. I heard others argue over the most nitpicky details concerning the end times. Would God take his children to heaven before the Great Tribulation, or would they have to hang around and endure the birth pains of a new kingdom? For the earnest and well-meaning people involved, none of these questions were silly or peripheral. They cut to the heart of what it means to be Christian. I fear that the same is true when I speak glibly of John 3.16 as Christianity in a nutshell. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that anyone who believes in him may not perish but may have eternal life. It sounds so gorgeously precise, so deceptively simple. But does all of Christianity really come down to my accepting certain propositions about Jesus to be factual? To be true? Is that really it? For me, this way of believing, this way of defining faith as an intellectual assent to precisely codified doctrines, has fallen apart. Not because I can't assent, but because my assenting in and of itself hasn't fostered anything close to the meaningful relationship I desire to have with God. If anything, my intellectual assent has functioned as a smokescreen, a distraction, a substitute. In her 2013 book, Christianity After Religion, historian Diana Butler Bass points out that the English word believe comes from the German belieben, the German word for love. To believe is not to hold an opinion. To believe is to treasure, to hold something beloved, to give my heart over to it without reservation. To believe in something is to invest it with my love. This is true in the ancient languages of the Bible as well. When the writers of the Hebrew Bible and the New Testament wrote of faithfulness, they were not writing about an intellectual surrender to a factual truth. They were writing about fidelity, trust, and confidence. As they saw it, to believe in God was to place their full confidence in Him, to throw their whole hearts, minds, and bodies into His hands. The fact is, I can't think of any significant human relationships in which doctrine matters more than love and trust. So why should my relationship with God be any different? What does it mean to believe in Jesus, to hold on to him, to trust him with my life? For Nicodemus, it meant starting anew, letting go of all he thought he understood about the life of faith. It meant being born again, becoming a newborn, 
vulnerable, hungry, and ready to receive reality in a brand new way. It meant coming out of the darkness and risking the light. None of this could be reduced to an altar call or a litmus test. The work of trusting Jesus was mind-bending, soul-altering work. It was hard, and it took time, and it involved setbacks, fears, and disappointments. No wonder Nicodemus walked away baffled that first night. Jesus was calling him to so much more than a rote recitation of the sinner's prayer. He was calling him to fall in love and stay in love. Why is belief important to God? Because love is important to God. To believe is to beloved. Christianity in a nutshell sounds catchy, but in the end, I don't think it exists. I also don't think that easy answers or efficient sound bites will serve us well during this Lenten season. After all, we're in the desert now, in the wilderness, wandering, thirsting, yearning, waiting and listening goes with the territory. John 3.16 is a beautiful passage of scripture, and we are right to recite it, memorize it, and cherish it. But the way of faith it points to is as vast and mysterious as all the workings of a human heart reaching out for God's. That's why we can trust it. Its challenge corresponds to reality. No love as rich, demanding, costly, and free as God's love for us can ever be reduced to a formula. For books this week, Brad Keister reviews Neil Ferguson's The Square and the Tower, Networks and Power from the Freemasons to Facebook. The Scottish historian Neil Ferguson, currently a senior fellow at Stanford's Hoover Institution, argues that present-day controversies about social media are not without precedent, and that they are best understood within the context of hierarchies, governments, companies, and organized churches, and networks, groups of people sharing a common attribute. Networks, both animate and inanimate, have been studied extensively over the past few decades, and Ferguson uses network methodology as a historical lens. Hierarchies are inherently structured for self-preservation. Major changes can only come from the outside, and networks often play a critical role. Ferguson provides many examples, including the American and French revolutions. Networks can spawn and incubate new ideas, but they are inherently ungoverned. For all the flaws of hierarchy, Ferguson argues that they are ultimately needed to rein in the chaos that networks eventually lead to on their own. There is much discussion as to whether Western states will revert to the totalitarian entities of the First and Second World Wars, but Ferguson claims that this is the wrong perspective, and, they, and that we would do better to look back to an older technological advance, Gutenberg's invention of movable type, which enabled common citizens to exchange information at unprecedented levels. This, in turn, led to civil strife that toppled hierarchies and ushered in a century of violent conflicts. The modern counterpart to the printing press is the Internet, and Ferguson sees far more upheaval yet to come before Western society comes to terms with it. For movies this week, Dan reviews Snow to Sand. In 2018, almost 1,200 people self-reported that they had completed the entire 2,650-mile Pacific Crest Trail from Mexico to Canada. And every last one of those people hiked in the season between April and October in order to avoid the obvious, harsh winter conditions that include frigid temperatures, high winds, snowstorms, rain, and short days. There is now one exception to these statistics. In 2014, Sean Forey and Justin Lichter became the first people ever 
to hike the entire PCT during the winter, 132 days from October 21, 2014 to March 1, 2015. The New York Times described their plan as the most daring and foolhardy wilderness expedition since Lewis and Clark. But Forey and Lichter were no novices. Between the two of them, they had hiked about 55,000 miles all over the world, including 5,000 miles together. This one-hour film tells the story of their remarkable feat. There are three big questions that were left unanswered in this movie, and they are important ones. First, how did they replenish their food and supplies? Second, what technology did they use for communication and navigation? And then, I wanted to know more about who did the photography for the film and how they did it. I watched this film on Amazon Prime Video. Lastly, for poems on the second Sunday in Advent, Now I Become Myself by May Sarton. Now I Become Myself. It's taken time, many years and places. I have been dissolved and shaken, worn other people's faces, run madly as if time were there, terribly old, crying a warning. Hurry, you'll be dead before... What? Before you reach the morning? Or the end of the poem is clear? Or love safe in the walled city? Now to stand still, to be here, feel my own weight and density. The black shadow on the paper is my hand. The shadow of a word as thought shapes the shaper falls heavy on the page, is heard. All fuses now, falls into place from wish to action, word to silence. My work, my love, my time, my face gathered into one intense gesture of growing, like a plant. As slowly as the ripening fruit, fertile, detached, and always spent, falls but does not exhaust the root, so all the poem is, can give, grows in me to become the song, made so and rooted so by love. Now there is time, and time is young. Oh, in the single hour I love all of myself and do not move. I, the pursued who madly ran, stand still, stand still, and stop the sun. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for March 8th, 2020. I'm Debbie Thomas.